Good morning, everyone. And look, thank you very much for joining this webinar. Uh, it's for WAM Alternate Assets. Um, and we we want to just talk to you about the um, you know, 2022-23 result. Uh, as you know, this is your company. Uh, and thank you for everyone who's dialed in. We've got, you know, I think, maybe you know, close to a record number of people that have dialed in. Obviously, a lot of interest in um, alternate assets uh, at this time. And, and also, I think, you know, with the result, you know, which was a, a very strong result, um, you know, good uh, growth in, in dividend. Uh, even though the profit um, was down a little bit, we'll, we'll go through that in a little bit more detail um, later. Uh, you, I'll be uh, on the line for, you know, questions and answers. Also, you know, Dunya, who... Um, runs the portfolio, who's the portfolio manager for WMA, um, will be here to answer your questions. And Emico, um, you know, one of our corporate affairs uh, team, will be moderating the questions and, and answers. In, in terms of the actual result, I suppose the highlight from our perspective, you know, this is from the director's perspectives, was the fact that, you know, since... Wilson Asset Management's been managing um, the, the old, you know, this old pool of capital, you know, focused on investing in, you know, the best uh, alternate asset opportunities. Uh, the profit reserve has grown, and so it's allowed uh, the board of directors to have confidence uh, in increasing the dividend. And you'll see, you know, you would have seen that the dividend increased uh, 25% um, over... A, a year ago, so um, with a with a good profit reserve, um, yeah, and expectations of you know Wham Alternative Assets to continue to make profit in future years, uh, the company is very well positioned. Um, one of the things that is um, a focus of the um, the board and and also Dania and and her team. Um, is to make sure that the share price uh, is fully reflected of the value of the underlying assets. And uh, currently, you know, the, it's a great opportunity for people wanting to invest in a, a, a unique company like this um, because it's trading below you know, the value of those underlying assets. You know, we're very confident that the, um, you know, that, that discount will disappear over time. It has disappeared um, significantly, or it's it's contracted significantly since you now Wilson Asset Management took over the management of um, this company, uh, and that's you know, nearly three odd years ago. Um, we, we're also you know pretty focused on getting it to the share price to trade at NTA, if not a premium. And and if that was the case, then the you know, share price would be um, you know, 16 or 17 percent higher, uh, fully reflecting you know, the underlying assets. And you could probably argue that uh, you, you should actually pay a premium um, to these underlying assets because it's you're getting exposure to a number of these managers that the um, that us, you know, like as in retail investors, you now that we can't get exposure to. Um, which is 
To me, I think Daniel's used this phrase a number of times before. It's really the democratisation of investing in, um, in in these type of uh, uh, fund, in these type of assets through these, you know, the best um, Australian fund managers we can find. So, look, what I what did I I'd like to now pass you over to Dania, who will take you through um, the next part of the presentation. Then we'll open it up for any questions you have. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, and good morning, everyone. So we briefly talked about the investment performance. I just wanted to um, emphasize solid investment performance, 11.6% per annum since the appointment of Wilson Asset Management. What's really interesting that this investment performance uh, was achieved with the volatility of 3.4% as measured by standard deviation, which is lower than um, broader markets than other traditional asset classes. So our thesis um, and our excitement about those complementary benefits of alternative investments um, really holds in particular in, in the current market environment. Um, linked to the performance, I did want to talk today about two asset classes that contributed positively to the investment performance of WMA this year. And those two asset classes are in line, uh, and, and the strategies where we invested are in line with the investment theme, one of the investment themes that we follow, it's growing demand for food. Uh, I found it very interesting when looking at the market research and doing more analysis on the macroeconomic fundamentals. And uh, a, a question to you, um, you don't have to answer, but a question, I wonder if you know how much you spend on your grocery shopping per month now. So um, I'll tell you what's the increase from last year. The average Australian family saw about 60% increase on their grocery shopping per month, which is now approximately $860 per month. So looking at these numbers, looking at other factors, it's really important for me to see, okay, how does it actually translate into investment opportunities for us, into investment opportunities in private equity, real assets, and other asset classes. And two examples from private equity that I wanted to give you within this investment theme are around privately owned businesses that are um, within the retail food sector, within, uh, within that very interesting thematic and the thematic where you inevitably get exposure um, to this, you know, inflation protection and inflation hedge theme. One of them uh, was an investment or um, additional acquisition by Birch and White. That's a business where we invested with one of our partners, Fortitude Investment Partners. Now, Birch and White is a Sydney-based manufacturer of condiments, desserts, and beverages, and they've been around from 1980s, very successful business. And what Fortitude Investment Partners did, they brought in that growth private capital to help them expand the business. The latest acquisition that was just recently announced 
was the acquisition of Epicurean Foods. It's another successful business based in Queensland that is focused more on organic produce and more flexible packaging, also tapping into the theme of climate change and looking at reducing food waste, looking at using more renewable energy resources for their production. Another example that most of you would surely know uh, those um, retail brands is Retail Zoo. Retail Zoo is an Australian business that owns casual dining and um, fast refreshments chains, food chains. So two brands that are iconic in Australia, one Betty's Burgers and another one um, Boost Juice. Now with Betty's Burgers, uh, very successful stories, um, about five years ago, they only had eight stores in Australia. Now they have 85, uh, 55 stores across Australia, and there is very strong opportunity for further growth. We invested in this business with one of our investment partners, Adamantum Capital, and Adamantum Capital comes in as a majority stakeholder in the business, and it will continue growing those businesses across Australia, expanding them, improving their operational efficiencies. The second asset class that contributed positively to our performance is real assets. Not surprisingly, uh, not surprisingly because we see investments in water rights and investments in agriculture as very strong diversifiers within the portfolio, but also very strong performers, both in terms of the capital appreciation and income return. And again, um, you know, I love stats. I love looking at numbers, um, looking at the performance of Australian farmland over the last 10 years, the value of Australian farmland increased by 195%. And as an asset class, it outperformed equities both in Australia and globally over 1, 5, 10, and 20 years. So some people do call it a quiet achiever because it's often overlooked by investors and it is quite a niche specific asset class. Um, but it is going to continue um, providing very interesting opportunities for investors. So within WMA, we have approximately 29.4% exposure to real assets that includes water rights and includes agriculture exposure. Within agriculture, our main asset that we own now is Nerican Citrus that is based in New South Wales. And it's a um, very um, good quality asset in terms of the orchard trees produces predominantly citrus. And the manager who is operating the asset, Argyle Capital, they've done a lot of redevelopment work on this asset to improve the value. Now, what's important in Australia with agriculture assets is that you do need to have water entitlements or water rights attached to agriculture assets. And Nerican Citrus has approximately 5% of our total water exposure um, attached to it so that when we are going to exit this asset, it will enhance its value and it will allow operators to continue operating it in a very efficient way. And with water rights, uh, hopefully we all feel the weather is changing. 
there is very high probability and actually it is already happening that we are moving into El Nino, a drier season. What does it mean for us as investors? It means potential for further growth in values of water entitlements, but also the improvement in the income return from leasing those water entitlements to irrigators. So two very important asset classes in our portfolio, um, key exposures within WMA. And what I want to highlight, Jeff did say that our goal is to democratize alternative investing. Now, those assets, those investments, they're not accessible by retail investors. And we are very excited that we can partner with high quality investment teams to invest alongside them in those assets and bring them to our shareholders. I will now pass to Emiko for questions and um, thank you very much. Thank you, Dania and Jeff for your insights. And thank you to all for joining the WAM Alternative Assets webinar today. We've had quite a few questions come through to the webinar. Uh, Jeff, we'll start with you. This question is from Danny uh, and his question is, the original premise of this fund was to return capital to investors as exits were achieved. Uh, whilst acknowledging that the focus is now on retaining capital to invest in new opportunities, the profits reserve isn't reflected in the share price. Uh, will you look to distribute a higher proportion to narrow the discount to the net asset value? Um. So, so there's a various parts to that question, uh, and I think um, who, who? Sorry, who was the question from? This question's from Danny. Yeah. So, Danny, the first part of the question was talking about when this fund was set up with Blue Sky, uh, and and reading the prospectus, and I remember when they floated, you know, floated the company. And I think they raised, you know, trying to raise more than $50 million. I think they raised $67 million. Uh, the, I think the, you know, the, the premise was to invest in, you know, various alternate assets uh, and and give shareholders a return over time. And, and um, when it was in that original structure, they actually raised money a number of times. So I don't think the premise was just to invest in a single um, or, or in a number of assets and then when they uh, sell them to give the money back to investors. I, I, yeah, to me, it, it clearly was a progressive growing entity um, and that's why they you know, used a listed investment company. So the in terms of you know, when we took over the management of the company, you know, our, our focus is, get, is to get the shares to fully reflect the value um, and that's the underlying value of the assets, and that's um, you know it can be measured by NTA. Uh, and and since we took over, you know, the the, um, the the share price was trading at over a thirty percent discount to NTA. You know, we've narrowed that uh, quite significantly. It still is trading at a very healthy discount to NTA around, and that's if you're a buyer. So around that seventeen you know, percent odd discount. Um, and and our, our plan is, you know, to get it to trade at NTA, if not a premium. Um, and as you would have known, historically, in, in the previous structure, 
it did trade at a premium a number of times. The reason why it's taken us a period of time to get it to trade at NTA uh, or, or the discounted is it just what you find is that people that bought it at a 30% plus discount, you know, it goes to a 25% discount, they sell. You, know, you get a lot of um, you know, churning of the of the portfolio and it takes a, a period of time for, for share registers to tighten up. And once they do tighten up, you know, all the people that have, you know, that have bought at a big discount and have rolled out, you know, the, and, and you've got the true believers that are shareholders and, and a tighter share register, then it does trade at NTA if not a premium. So, so that's that's broadly the plan. In terms of the profit reserve, the profit reserve, yeah, that 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 is an accounting entry. So the actual money um, is in the company and is being invested, um, and yeah, the goal is to. You know, continue to grow the dividend. Um, it's not to, yeah, you know, it's have, have it's to have a consistent, you know, growing, fully frank dividend. Yeah, you know, that's the plan. Um, sixty, we we tend to find that sixty to sixty five percent of investors tend to be self managed um, super fund investors, and they're looking for those consistent, uh, fully frank dividends. So there's no real value. Now we could pay a high dividend this year, which which may mean that at some point in time we've got to cut the dividend. Um, you know, so we could pay all the profit reserve out today. The problem is that wouldn't be fully franked because there tends to be a lag between making the profit and and realizing um, you know and and realizing those assets and paying the tax. So you tend to find the profit reserve is, is leading, uh, and the you know, the franking comes later. And obviously, as as a corporation, you know, the focus is um, you know, to invest the money and get a return um, and pay tax. You know, we prefer to pay tax you know, down the track, um, and so you know, only when tax is, is needed to be paid, and then obviously we pay it out as as fully frank dividends. So I think was that pretty much did that cover most of the parts of the? Uh, I think it was multifactorial that um, question. Yeah. yeah, no, I think you've covered um, all of uh, Danny's questions there, Jeff. Thank you, um, Dania. We'll turn to you now. This question um, is from uh, Elizabeth. How do you think about inflation in regards to alternative investing? Which asset classes provide the best inflation hedge? Thank you, Elizabeth. Great question. Um, look, within alternatives, there are asset classes such as real estate and infrastructure. Um, and I would add on some of the sub-asset classes within real assets that I do consider as a natural inflation hedge. The reason for that, I'll break it down for you. Um, if we take, as an example, real estate and the current uh, WMA's investment within the portfolio uh, would be healthcare real estate. Why do I see it as an inflation hedge? Because when I look at the income return from this strategy, approximately 70 to 75% of income 
would be linked to CPI, annual CPI increases. And this is really due to the structure of the underlying leases of the assets. So if we take one of the assets like Gosford Hospital, um, the lease duration with the tenant on that asset is over 10 years. And within the lease contract, there is an agreement that every year the rent will be revised in line with CPI. And this is how, um, for me, when I look for, you know, I talk about inflation protection as a benefit of alternative investing, this is where it comes from. Very similar to infrastructure. In fact, infrastructure has very strong positive relationship with inflation. So we do see a lot of benefits um, and we do see improvement in value in some of the infrastructure assets in um, high inflationary environment. Again, this is due to the nature of the contractual revenues of infrastructure assets and embedded CPI linkage within those revenues. Real assets is probably more indirect. So if we think about agriculture assets, um, and I briefly talked about the inflation and how much we are spending now on grocery shopping, uh, food inflation has been like one of the highest um, compared to all other categories. So again, this is more of an indirect inflation hedge when we see commodity prices increasing and uh, food and non-alcoholic beverages, CPI, increases, it does translate then into the value of farmland, into the value of agribusinesses. Thank you. Hi, uh, hi and Emiko, I just, I'd just like to come back to Danny's question because it just took me a few minutes to, um, you know, to uh, Think about Danny's question, and now I, I know I know which Danny who is asking the question. It's actually a, a Danny I used to work with, um, and, and, uh, yeah, in, in my early yeah, in, in, when we we're both in our I think in our twenties. Um, one of the things is you know with the you know with a listed investment company, one of the things you've got to balance is how the investor gets the re their returns, uh, and um, you know, the the board of um, you know, WMA is very cognizant. You know, at the moment, you're getting you know, on assets, say it's a, a return of a, a, a around four percent, fully franked. Um, you know, say if over time, you know, the market's going to do about ten percent. Um, you know, the I mean, Dania mentioned earlier about the volatility, like the volatility of this fund. You know, if if it's um, you know three point four percent. Then that is exceptional, um, exceptionally low volatility, and we all know there's a direct correlation between risk and return. You know, say the equity market on average, you know, does about you know ten percent return, but with with about ten percent volatility. So if if someone's doing you know, a third of that volatility, then you'd probably be expecting a third of the return. Uh, but that's you know not what uh, WMA's been able to achieve, um, and. and Again, what not? Yeah, you know, we're not we're planning to have that low volatility with a lot higher returns for that volatility. Uh, and and if, you know, say if we're expecting to do that eight to ten percent uh, returns over time. Um, and in terms of as an investor, you're getting um, you know say four percent of it as as a fully franked return. Then obviously you know, the company has to pay tax to get the franking. So you know that's that's a five and a half percent. You know, say pre-tax return, and so you know the other, 
you know, four and a half, you know, say three and a half to, sorry, um, the other four and a half, two and a half to four and a half percent to do that eight to 10 percent is in capital growth. So, you know, the board is very focused on having a, co- a combination of, you know, a fully frank return plus um, a, a capital growth. You know, that's the plan for the company now, Danny. And and before, you know, when with the blue sky, it might have been a bit more focused on, you know, putting, you know, realising an asset, making a big capital return or a, you know, a fully frank return and then raising more capital. Yeah, you know, our plan is, you know, not to raise capital, to get it trading at NTA if not a premium. You know, then, then if we can, you know, once we've done that, then there's an opportunity to grow it. Um, and and that's why you know the board sort of I just wanted to give you a bit more flavour um, because it twigged to me you know, the the Danny that was asking the question and and looking forward to seeing you at lunch today, Danny. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff. There, um, Dania, we'll turn to you. Uh, this question is from Matthew. Can you please talk a little bit about the liquidity? of your investments and how this affects the way you think about cash in the portfolio. Once all capital in the portfolio is committed, will you need to raise in order to invest in additional opportunities? Thank you, Matthew. To some extent, I would say even linked to what what was uh, Jeff talking about on the previous question, to some extent. So, the most, well, one of the most fascinating parts about my role is managing the cash flows within the portfolio and very valid question. Now, let's take a step back and see at this, look at the structure. It's a listed investment company structure, which to me as a portfolio manager, I look at this as a perpetual pool of capital. So in a way, it's a life portfolio that is evolving over time. And I can illustrate it to you what's been happening over the last three years. So within the portfolio, there is a combination of investments, underlying assets with various maturity, different duration. And over time, since the inception of Wilson Asset Management, we started exiting, or in other words, selling, maturing assets, and then redeploying this capital into new opportunities. There is a term that is often used in alternatives called vintage year. What it means, it basically means the year when the investment was actually made. Why it is important to see a very good vintage year diversification within this portfolio, because that means we can manage the maturity of the assets year by year without significant concentration risk. Now, given that we talked a bit about the legacy of the portfolio, what happened at the beginning since the inception when when this leak was actually listed, a lot of the growth investments, i.e. very illiquid investments, they were made uh, within 2015-2016 framework. So to me, quite a high vintage concentration within the portfolio. What it meant as well that it also resulted to some extent in quite a concentrated time frame of many exits that we saw within the portfolio. My goal is to spread the timing of those exits as much as possible and have a more consistent flow of exits and capital return 
but on top of that, also continue receiving income return from the more core yielding strategies within the portfolio. So long, long answer to your questions um, in terms of how the cash flow is being managed. Let's say we're looking now at a fairly high level of cash within the portfolio. However, about two thirds of that cash has been already committed. So the actual true level of uncommitted cash is only about 12%, which to me for this type of the portfolio is a good level of cash. The investment opportunities come in sporadic nature. I do want to have capital available in order to commit to new opportunities. Now, that other committed cash is being deployed over time rather than when you commit it's deployed immediately. That's just the nature of alternative assets. And my expectation is by get to a significantly lower level of uh, committed cash uh, because I see the flow of deals has been improving. We see more opportunities coming and we receive more capital calls from our investment partners. Now, in terms of the actual duration of the underlying assets, I'll try to break it down at a, more, at a, at a higher level. Within private equity, we're usually looking at seven years. That's the investment horizon that's very typical for private equity. Within um, asset classes such as infrastructure, core infrastructure, water rights, or core healthcare real estate, there are liquidity provisions in the structures that we invest in. Those liquidity provisions are quarterly. So on the quarterly basis, investors may redeem capital and those redemptions will be met on the best endeavor effort. And Water Rights uh, Fund, you know, by definition, sorry, <laughs> always makes me laugh. It is an, a more liquid investment compared to the rest. So. It's about managing the maturity of the investments, managing vintage year diversification, but also managing the duration of the assets that we invest in. I hope it answers your question, Matthew. And just, just I'd like to add something on on, on that, Tanya. Yeah, we were we were down in Melbourne um, yeah, early in the week, and um, while we're down there, yeah, I I caught up with. You know, one of the you know, probably the you know, the senior well one of the largest super funds in Australia um, one of their um, you know, alternative asset managers uh, and um, and this sort of yeah you know, I mean this is Dania's view as well but to me it was interesting to you know, hear, hear their viewers uh, was they were saying how in terms of you know, vintage years, that 2024 will will look back in time, or looking in the future, will be one of the you know, great periods for investing in alternate assets. Um, and the great thing is, you know, at the moment with your portfolio, you know, Dan, you, you're saying it's 36% cash. You now, of that, 24% committed, but that committed money hasn't been invested, and so you'd assume that. Committed, you know, that 36%, 24 committed plus the 12% cash. If that gets invested over the next, you know, 12 months, it's, you know, you really got over a third of the portfolio being invested in probably what one of, is going to be one of the best years uh, yeah. for alternative assets for quite a period of time. 
Um, and, and why is it a great year? Because, you know, the economy is finding things tough. So valuations uh, um, are, are yep. more respectable. And then, you know, we, we, you know, we all know we do, you know, things will improve, um, you know, further down the track. And so to me it just, you know, sort of agrees, you know, with everything you're saying. That Thank you, Jeff. Great, thank you. Um, Dania, we'll go to you um, and perhaps, Jeff, you can um, uh, touch on this as well. Gary has asked, with the private companies you are co-investing in, do you take a seat on the board of these companies and give advice as to how to grow these uh, businesses or are you simply a passive investor? Thank you, Gary. Um, at the moment, when I think about the core investments that are within WMA portfolio and the newer ones that we made as well over the last three years, they are core investments alongside our investment partners. And a lot of this due to the size of our WMA portfolio. So as the portfolio grows and our tickets or the size of the investments when we commit to co-investments increase, we will potentially be looking at you know, taking seats on the boards or taking more active participation um, in the strategic uh, decisions on those companies. For now, um, my priority is really to continue revitalizing the portfolio uh, from where we started, continuing focusing on exiting the inherited investments. And by the way, I wanted to um, highlight as well that as of now, we have approximately 19% uh, of the portfolio within inherited uh, growth, i.e. private equity investment. So I will, uh, I do expect more exits to come through over the next 12 to 18 months. So, you know, core investments, um, they are a very important um, implementation routes for the WMA portfolio because they do allow us more flexibility in terms of cash flow, more flexibility in terms of capital calls, but also be more active um, in terms of you know managing those investments and, and making the investment decisions. One thing that we do now, we do have veto right over co-investments. So when we uh, commit to those deals within our separate mandates, and apologies if I do get a bit technical, do, do ask questions if something is unclear, uh, we can exercise our veto right over the investments or over the co-investments. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Dania. Uh, we'll stick with you. This question is from Denton, and he's asked, does the portfolio include investments in data centers, and what is your view of this type of investments? Thank you. Another great question. Um, not at the moment. So I would categorize data centers within infrastructure. The challenge with investing in data centers in a scalable way in Australia is the size of the market. So it is a fairly small segment of the infrastructure market in Australia. And most of the capital flow globally in data centers has been really happening predominantly in the US. 
Um, for me, it's more around finding opportunities within that digitalization trend or digitalization theme that we follow. And a lot of the deals within that theme, they are around fiber network or cell towers, um, predominantly in the US as well. So as an example, with Palisade Infrastructure Partners, they have recently, well, last year, they've established an office in New York. They have been looking at the US infrastructure market for a while, and they have completed a number of successful deals within that digitalization theme. So we will be getting access um, to those type of assets, um, but unlikely in Australia at this stage, doesn't mean that it won't happen in the future. As the market matures and grows, I'm sure we will be able to find opportunities here as well. Thank you. Great, thank you, Dania. Jeff, we'll turn to you, and this question is from Murray. We've touched on a very similar topic um, earlier in this webinar, but let's come back to that again. Uh, so he read a review from Lonsec that mentioned if the NTA discount was not closed within five years, then the board has to recommend winding up the funds and returning the capital back to shareholders. Uh, so firstly, is this statement correct? And secondly, does this mean there is only two years left before this termination may need to be made? The, 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 what he read is, is broadly correct. Um, it's not you know, the way um, that the question's been asked is, isn't actually exactly correct. Um, the, you know, so what... Um, when, when we took over uh, the other management of WMA, um, you know, we said to shareholders that um, order the you know, the board that we you know, when we're coming in uh, that after five years that let, let's go to let's have a vote um, of shareholders in terms of you know do they want the company to keep uh, going as it is. Or do they want the money uh, to be returned? Um, so, yeah, that's the plan. Um, yeah, so there's a couple of years in the next couple of well, in two years' time, then yeah, the board will put to shareholders um, at a yeah at, at the AGM uh, to vote on you know what happens to the company a and the you know that's effectively. Um, you know, shareholders own the company, and so it's it's shareholders, you know, it's shareholders' decisions. Um, yeah, so I mean, our our plan would be, you know, that the share price, um, you know, fully reflects the assets, if not trades at a premium, and um, you know. We've been successful in doing that with a number of listed investment companies. The one that's taken us the longest to get it to trade to premium um, was you know, Wham Research. That's one of our listed investment companies. It actually took us seven years to get it to trade uh, at a premium. Um, and probably the unfortunate thing is there we did too good a job uh, because now it trades at quite a, a sizable premium. I think it's trading at a 
you know, 20 to 25% premium now, but a year or two ago, I was, I was trading at close to a 40 or could have been over a 40% premium NTA. So, I mean, the, these listed investment companies, it's really a, a job of tightening up the share register, um, you know, getting the people that want to go on the journey to go on the journey with you. Um, yeah, but at any point in time, if shareholders decide, you know, that, you know, that they would, um, you know, that that's, you know, they, they prefer their money back, then that's that's an option. And, and with this entity, yeah, we do have a mechanism uh, and that in two years' time there will be a vote on, on the future of the company. Great. Thanks, thank you, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. Dania, we'll turn to you. Uh, what is the current exposure or short-term strategy to development aspects of renewable energy and energy storage? Thank you. Uh, thank you for the question. So, um, just wanted to clarify, what is the current exposure to development assets within renewable energy infrastructure? Okay. Yeah. The, uh, the, the reason I want to clarify that, that um, because there is, um, you know, quite a big difference between development of what is called greenfield renewable energy infrastructure and already established or what is called brownfield renewable energy infrastructure. So within WMA portfolio, we have approximately 12.8% um, exposure to infrastructure. Out of this, it's um, about 2% roughly exposure to um, sorry, um, two percent exposure. Like I'm thinking about uh, a climate uh, climate friendly. It's about um, four point two percent exposure to renewable energy infrastructure. Now, that exposure um, is through investment with Palisade Renewable Energy Platform called Intera. Intera is one of the largest renewable energy pl platforms in Australia. They currently have eight assets on the platform, six of those assets. They are mature established assets and two assets are under the, the development. So the plan is over time to gradually grow our exposure to infrastructure as an asset class. And within infrastructure, really, most of the deal flow currently in Australia is within renewable energy. And that's driven a lot by regulatory changes in Australia, more focused on climate change and net zero targets set by the Australian government. So my expectation is it will continue growing and um, a great asset to have within the portfolio. Once again, an asset class that does provide fairly good inflation hedge. Um, what I do want to clarify, though, that we don't um, get exposure to the energy prices um, when we talk about the renewable energy infrastructure. And this is mainly due to the nature of the contracts that we have in place. So the pricing is really based on the amount of energy produced rather than linked to the changes in prices. I hope that answers the question. Thank you. Thank you, Dania. And we'll stick with you. Uh, this question's from Uslid. Can you please explain the reason for the investment in advisory consultancy Asin? 
Given the PwC spin-off, do you think there is some reputational risk associated with PwC? Thank you. Um, another great question. I love the questions today. Um, look, with this particular deal, um, I would consider this to some extent still a live transaction. We will actually have um, our investment partner, Allegro Funds, today at our investment lunch um, talking about their deals. Um, I would carefully commend that these type of deals, they are at core what Allegro Funds team would do. So they would get involved in quite complex deals, complex transactions, be it turnarounds, transformation, corporate carve-outs, or public to private transactions. And they are active owners. So when they acquire a business uh, across one of those sub-strategies that they look at, their goal is to basically turn around the business through active ownership by implementing strong governance framework, by implementing certain uh, changes to the operations of the business, um, to the growth plans and strategic plans, etc. So from my perspective, when this deal first uh, was discussed with, with the investment team as, as one of the deals in the pipeline, to me, that was a typical deal that they would look at. And in the Australian market, there were not that many private equity players who have the skills and who have the track record on executing this type of deals. There is Allegro funds. Um, they, they would be one of the uh, key players. And then there is another larger player, but they would look at slightly different transactions in Australia. So um, to me, it's about you know, getting ownership in a business that would require their expertise and skills to make certain changes that will contribute to the positive outcome. I would prefer to leave it at that, given that it's still considered a live transaction. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Dania. And we'll stick with you. Uh, this question is from Danny. Um, do the agriculture investments come with commodity exposure? And if not, how are they structured? If there is commodity exposure, what is this? Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Um, my answer to this, if it's a general question, my answer would be quite general as well. It depends. And, and it depends really on the type of the agriculture assets, on the type of the agriculture deal that we talk about. So there are certain investments within agriculture where the income would be directly or nearly directly linked to the volume and price of the produce. Um, this type of the transactions within agriculture are called um, shared lease, um, where basically the operator would pay partly um, lease payment or rental payment for the use of farmland. And then on top of that, the payment would be linked to the volume of the production from that particular orchard or that particular plantation. Now, within WMA, 
one of the major exposures that we have in agriculture would be Nerican citrus. That's a large uh, citrus orchard in New South Wales, Griffin. And um, it would be considered more of a private equity type of agriculture investment where our investment partner, Argyle Capital, they manage the asset, they redevelop the asset, they might contract um, some operators to help them with that. Um, but basically, all the return that we see from these assets, everything we see in terms of the impact on valuations, everything is taken into account. So when once a year an independent valuer goes and assesses the, uh, the orchard and produces the valuation report, they would look at a number of factors. They would look at um, farmland value. They would look at the quality of the trees. That's why certain assets, they would uh, involve a lot of redevelopment. They would look at the quality of infrastructure. In this particular asset, Argyle invested a lot in protective netting that does enhance the value of the asset. They would look at value of water rights attached to this asset. They would look at the volume and forecast of the produce. They wouldn't necessarily look at the price of the citrus produced on that farmland. And commodity prices can be very volatile. To some extent, investing in agriculture assets um, does shield the investors from the commodity from the volatility of the commodity prices. So indirectly, yes, there will be some impact on the value over time. Um, but this would be mainly driven by the strategic decision. So let's say if we see Overall, globally, um, the prices for citrus are declining and the long-term trend is that the demand for citrus is declining. Then over time, we will just see more conversion of citrus farms, let's say, into macadamia farms. So this is where you'd see the, that indirect impact of commodity prices. But this would happen over medium to long term rather than year on year. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Dania. We'll stick with you with this question from Graham. Can you please discuss the valuation process for the holdings in the portfolio? Thank you, Graham. Certainly one of my favorite topics. <laughs> um, so on the valuations front, um, I would break it into two parts. One part would be how we assess valuations uh, within WMA portfolio. And from WMA perspective, we do very detailed valuation assessments twice a year, one as at the end of December and one at the end of the financial year, end of June. Um, what is it involved? It involves um, looking at valuations of each investment. So not only co-investments that we have in the portfolio, but also underlying investments when we invest in pooled funds. Um, this involves a production of the report that includes analysis on valuations, appro valuation approaches being used, valuation frequency, governance framework, valuation policies. We would look at market comparables where appropriate. So, for example, in private equity, it is very common to look at public market equivalents and see where similar companies or businesses are trading. We would look at 
trading comparables. That's more of a similar privately owned companies, transactions in the market or M&A activities outside public markets. Um, we would also look and uh, monitor factors such as operating um, factors of this particular business, financial performance of the business, any updates on the management. So a lot of work goes into those assessments. Although they've done twice a year, in between, uh, we have monthly and in some cases quarterly update meetings with our investment partners where we go through each of the investment and receive updates again across most of their factor of those factors. Um, now, the second layer of the valuation process um, is looking at the valuations of the underlying assets. Again, it's about gathering the information on the regular basis on those investments and assets, and also getting access to independent or external valuation reports to look at the valuation inputs that are being used across different asset classes. There would be slightly different valuation inputs used, challenging where appropriate those inputs, discussing them with the investment partners. And um, at the end of all this process, our auditors prepare um, a report that is then provided to the board and is reviewed by the audit and risk committee at the board level. So very, very robust process, um, quite a complex process as well, because we invest across asset classes. Each asset class would be slightly different in terms of what valuations, valuation approaches they use and how frequently um, the independent valuations or internal valuations are being done. Um, but yeah, very happy if, if there are more questions on valuations, um, very happy to either have a separate call or cover it off. Um, like it's, um, it's, it's a fascinating topic. Thank you. Emika. Thank you so much, Dania. And this one's from Harriet. Do you look at overseas investments for WAM alternative assets? Thank you, Harriet. Look, not directly at the moment. We did have some overseas um, investments in the portfolio when we took over uh, the management of the company. Most of that exposure has been exited by now. So we had two commercial real estate assets in New York. Uh, we exited them. We had um, energy storage business in the U.S. Um, it's been exited. We still have some exposure. It would be below 10%. And most of that exposure would be more of an indirect exposure. So, for example, we have investment in tourism business that is based in New Zealand, but also has operations in the U.S. Or uh, we have an investment in an online education business that is based in the U.S., but has exposure globally. Um, the focus is really on the Australian market for WMA. We will get some exposure overseas from time to time with our investment partners and it would be more of an opportunistic um, type of investment rather than very targeted and with a set goal in mind. Thank you. Thank you, Dania. Uh, and this question is from Emily. Is the rising cost of debt hurting unlisted companies and eventuating in valuation write-downs? 
thank you, Emily. Look, I would say uh, rising cost of debt is hurting everyone um, at the moment, not, not only unlisted companies. To me, it comes down to the quality of the underlying assets, quality of the underlying businesses, their potential to generate cash, uh, financial health, and disciplined use of leverage. What I have seen over time, and that was a huge change since the global financial crisis, um, was a more disciplined approach, in particular in the asset classes, uh, like infrastructure, real estate, private equity, a more disciplined approach to the use of leverage. Um, for the existing privately owned businesses that do have debt in place in Australia, there are now more opportunities to access um, debt with more flexible terms. So, Again, that's a very interesting shift in the Australian market. Over the last five years, there have been more entrants in the Australian market from private lending side. So if before banks were the main lenders and banks had more power or influence over the terms of debt, um, now there is much more room for negotiation because more private lending capital is available to those companies. In a more focused fashion, if I think about your question, you are correct to think that rising cost of debt will inevitably affect the valuations of the unlisted business. It does not necessarily always lead to write downs in their valuations because of the factors that you'd need to consider when you do valuations, and I mentioned them. So what is interesting to observe now within private equity, one of the investment criteria that would be on the top of the agenda when you do the due diligence, it would be cash generation potential of the business. If the business can generate a good level of cash and the interest rate coverage would be at a healthy level, then it shouldn't affect the valuations in the negative way. Um, it's also um, important to think about the different ways um, capital structures would work for privately owned companies. So there are different ways to structure, different ways to have some embedded downside protection for this type of businesses, but definitely a big focus. So just yesterday, um, Danny and I, we attended private markets conference at Goldman Sachs and um, they had uh, their global co-head of private equity presenting. I think within 30 minutes, one of the most frequent phrase that he used rising cost of debt. Uh, so this is definitely huge focus for private equity investors. Thank you, Dania. It's been a marathon run for you um, with these questions. Um, I think we have one more uh, time for one more question. And this is from Gerald. Can you discuss the water rights holdings in the portfolio and how you approach sustainability issues with the investments here? Thank you. Um, 
Good question. Good question on water rights. And it does um, get a lot of attention from our shareholders, from the market as well. What I would highlight here first, we look at the ownership of the water entitlements in Australia. So that's more from the bigger picture to answer your question. Um, and this is mainly because, uh, you know, I do feel sometimes there is a sentiment that when institutional capital comes in into the areas such as water entitlements, water rights, it is not always seen as a positive development of the market. Now, institutional capital accounts for only approximately 12% of the total water entitlements that is reserved to irrigators. The rest is owned by still private owners, private companies, and you know, families and businesses. So it's, it's a small percentage of the overall ownership in the Australian market, actually much lower than in the markets like the US. And I do see institutional capital entering this asset class or this market in Australia as a positive because um, most of the players who operate in this space with institutional capital, they do bring very strong governance, very good established processes, transparency, and very good sense of um, ethic, ethics in the relationship with the irrigators. Um, the investment partner with whom we invest in water entitlements, Argyle Capital, They've been investing in this asset class since 2008, um, and they've been one of the first entrants in the market at the time when, you know, the the liquidity, I, re I remember, was estimated to be $150 million a year, which is much, much higher now. It's a much more mature market now. But um, look, it is very important for the players like Argyle Capital to ensure they work um, in a very compassionate and a very professional way with their clients, i.e. with irrigators. And by having strong relationships with the farmers and ensuring they work closely with the communities they invest, they also ensure um, their business and their investment model will be sustainable. What I also like about working with Argyle Capital is that they are not just investors in water entitlements. They also invest in agriculture. They are also operators and they understand very well all the challenges that can be faced by the Australian farmers, by the Australian irrigators. So without going into you know too many details on the ESG front related to the water entitlements, I can just say that we it is a topic of our discussions when when we meet with the team uh when we talk about the asset class and definitely something we monitor and we ensure there are those strong practices in place thank you great thank you so much dania and we'll pass it back to jeff to close the webinar look thank you emma cohen thank you dania and thank you for shareholders um, you know, where where you know you own the company, um, where there is the board and management, um, you know, to work on your behalf. 
So um, if you have any questions uh, or comments or thoughts, you know, please do communicate to us. Um, a- as you would have seen um, you know, from the, you know, the good questions you asked, but also from the answers from Dania, you know, that, that um, you know, she's got a, 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 an enormous amount of experience in this asset class. Um, and has really successfully repositioned this portfolio. So it, it's really, you know, very well positioned to continue to perform uh, in the medium to long term. Uh, so thank you for your support uh, and look forward to seeing you all in person soon. Thank you.